welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Welcome to another episode of the Barnyard Language Podcast. We are excited that you're here with us again today. And we're, Katie and I are going to try and keep this pretty short on the intro because we did get pretty chatty with our guests for this week who are very excited to talk about. So Katie, short version, what's happening on the farm? Nothing. Nothing. Just a ton of laundry I hear. So Arlene, yes. I had... A, to put it nicely, a doom mountain of fairly neatly stacked laundry, doom you know, I like that. in in baskets as opposed to a doom pile. A doom pile is like one slightly overflowing basket of laundry, I think. A doom mountain is more like, well, a mountain. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, unscalable, maybe. Yeah, it's it's been a while since my kids have played their favorite game, but for a long time, their favorite game was to make a pond or a lake out of laundry or bedding or anything else they found and then jumped into it. And unbeknownst to me, they did this a few days ago with my laundry mountain, which was in the corner of our bedroom. And then it was just, well, a, a landslide right across our bedroom, a, a, a like slide. Yes. to do that swap of laundry at which point, I stopped being able to ignore it at all. And being a, a pet owning household, of course, if you do not put the laundry in the dresser within 30 seconds of it coming out of the dryer, it is covered in cat hair again. Yep. And so same, same. it was easier to just wash everything than to try and figure out what was actually clean and what wasn't. And at the same time, I'm like getting rid of a bunch of clothing and checking sizes on the kids clothes whatever i need to put my summer stuff away but haven't done it yet so then everything is kind of overflowing because i haven't i've had to pull out some of the winter fall things but haven't really put the summer stuff away so there's there's no chance that everything can actually fit anywhere ah. it's just yeah it's everywhere no well, and I'm realizing I've had to buy some new clothes for myself. The I didn't want to just say shape of my body. The Then I was going to say consistency of my body, but that kind of sounds like a which I mean, maybe I have. I don't know. I've had to buy some new clothes. And I'm taking this opportunity to realize that I now have like eight pairs of jeans and no shirts and this sort of thing. So I'm realizing where there are some gaps. And for yeah. some reason probably own upwards of 40 pairs of socks, which I am realizing now that I've gotten through most of the doom swamp and have started putting things away. And I don't want to get rid of any of my socks, but also it seemed really ridiculous to have. So well, of all they're going the items back. of clothing. Yeah. All of the items of clothing, those are the smallest one to keep. So I give you permission. You can you can keep the socks. Well thank you. Thank you. Guys are getting ready to pick corn. We we grind your corn for our feed. So they will fill whatever Space we get in the green bins, and then everything else gets combined and sold. And I think that's about it. Combines are going hot and heavy in our neighborhood, so there's a lot of dust. And my house has been completely taken over by those fake Asian ladybug things. I've vacuumed up probably thousands of bugs 
in the last few days, like literally thousands of insects. It's revolting. Darlene, what's happening at your place? I, we're kind of in that hold pattern where I guess I already mentioned our harvest in terms of silage, corn silage and soybeans is already and corn is not happening for a while yet. So on the harvest front, things are pretty quiet, you know, just milking cows and doing the, the regular old stuff. Last weekend, my husband and I actually went away without children for a couple of days. So that felt pretty awesome. We went to a Scandinavian spa. So in theory, what you're supposed to do at this place is you do like a hot treatment. So that's either like steam room or sauna, then plunge in cold water. And so they have like waterfalls and pools. And then you go and relax somewhere for a little while and then do that cycle again a few times. And then at the end of some of those cycles, then you eventually go to the hot tub. So we don't necessarily find the plunging in cold water part all that relaxing. I know it's supposed to be good for your pores or something, digestion or circulation, who knows? So we kind of skip the plunging, but the sauna and the hot tub and the relaxing, we're all in on all those things. Plus that has fantastic food and it's in Quebec, so a little bit further away from here. So very cool menu options. And despite all the warning signs around the place saying you're not supposed to consume alcohol and participate in the activities, there's a lot of wine and beverage options too. So it's a very relaxing way to spend a day. So yeah, that was one of the things we did while we were away. Did lots of eating. There's a lot more duck on the menu in Quebec than we would see typically in Ontario. So had a few different duck-based meals, which is nice for a change. And yeah, that was our last weekend. So that was pretty fun. And kid-wise, everybody's pretty good. Had a few sick kids home this week, so that changed my plans a little bit, but I didn't have a ton going on, so it wasn't a big disruption into our our routine, I guess. Katie and I actually fit in three interviews in one week last week, so that was very exciting. We have a ton of fun guests coming up. So that leads me into this one. We're trying to keep our intro short today. We are talking to someone about sex, so that's not the easiest conversation sometimes to have and can be uncomfortable. And you might sense that Katie and I are a little uncomfortable or awkward maybe at times during this conversation, but our guests made it really easy on us and they are a super person. So we're really excited for you to hear this interview. Today, we are very excited to be talking to Corey Silverberg, who is the author of some of our favorite kids' books and a sex educator. So Corey, we start each of our interviews with the same question, and this is a way to introduce yourself to our listeners. And we ask, what are you growing? So for our farming guests, that covers crops and livestock, but it can also cover families and businesses, social change, whatever you want to include. So Corey, welcome, and what are you growing? Thanks for having me. But I probably have to start with a kid, just because I have an eight-year-old. So I'm still somewhat responsible. In fact, I'm quite responsible for making sure they eat and literally grow. And then, although although it's funny, because at this point, I already feel more like, well, I'm more responsible for their kind of like emotional, intellectual growth, I guess. So in terms of the things I like the best and most proud of, that would I probably start with that. So the other answer is like, I'm trying to grow the world that I want, which is also partly the world that we live in. But because I do that in the form of like sitting alone and writing and <laughs> sitting at a computer and emailing people and saying, would you write a review of my book? It doesn't actually feel like such a, it doesn't feel like a world growing project, right? Like it's, it's not, it feels very isolating, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's small. Uh, sometimes what's lovely is, and it happens a lot and it's great. 
I will get emails and anything that sort of suggests that like the books are useful or helpful because unlike, because of the way you asked the question, you know, I'm thinking about actually growing things in the ground where you get to see them grow or not, right? You're the in some sort of, it feels more like a relationship and weirdly writing books, even though I, like I sort of think about all my work as being about kind of relationship building, the big thing that I do is not, it doesn't feel like that so much because it's like I do a thing and then some people react to it and then I do a different thing. But anyway, the goal is that I'm trying to kind of create this world, the world that I want while living in the world that we have. That's my answer. <laughs> yeah, that feels feels big and important. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I love your words for that. So Corey, we thought we'd start by asking a little bit about your books and your book for that's kind of aimed at the youngest kids is what makes a baby or mm -hmm. what makes a baby. And it's yes. <laughs> a real favorite in our house. And so I, I asked the girl child what questions she had for you, because you're one of her very favorite authors. So I thought maybe mm -hmm. she'll really come up with something. And she goes, what's their middle name? <laughs> so that was, that was her one question. If you're that, okay that's with the sharing hard, the hard that, hitting that was, stuff right there. Right. She's real big on names right now. It is so. a great question. I also asked my kid for some input about, which we'll get to later. And it is great the things I say. My middle name is Lee. Uh, <laughs> so I can share that with her and you. My favorite thing about what makes a baby is how accessible it is for all the ways that families are formed. Because mm -hmm. so many books about how babies are made are very much, there's a mommy and a daddy and they love each other very much and they get married and they have a stable home, and they have jobs and health insurance, and then they right. make a baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> and all of those things are great, but it's not how a lot or probably most families are formed. Mm -hmm. And so I love that your book is very much scientific in that you have to have sperm, you have to have eggs, you have to have a uterus. Those are pretty undeniable for things. For now, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in our... Our scientific present, right. those are all necessary things. Um, so I love that you leave so much space for the social structure of the family to fill in around that, whether it's fertility right. or same-sex couples or trans parents or adoption or whatever mm -hmm. else that you allow families to fill that in themselves, because also it gives us as parents so much room to talk about our experience and also, right. I have to say that I love that you show C-section babies, because mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. yeah. something that is also very frequently left out and yeah. is a very common experience for parents. So it's yeah. strange to me that they don't mention it. So I'm wondering what the story is behind how you came up with this book and who you envision it being for. Yeah, I'm glad that you noticed all that. And that's absolutely, like, the book is a very stripped down story, not because I think kids can't handle complexity, it's because of exactly what you said, right? So because another thing that isn't mentioned in any of the books that I read was miscarriages, which are also incredibly common. And the thing with the C-section, I mean, so many people I know who had C-sections, when I'm talking to parents, they'll say like, I never know how to explain that scar to my kid. Which is such a, you know, which is sort of about a lot of things, the way that we shame people about their bodies and, you know, ideas of body perfection. But it's so strange because, of course, it's like, it's a great story to tell. I mean, I mean it might not have been a great story. It's this complicated thing. The, the moment and the healing afterwards may have been awful, but it's connected to this, the reason, the way that this kid is actually on the planet. So to answer the first part of your question, 
I wrote it specifically for a trans family. I wrote it for some friends of mine. Dad is trans, so his body doesn't have any sperm. So they used a sperm donor and the mom carried the baby. And so they had a kid who was four at the time. I was close to them. I was close to this kid. And then they were having another baby. His mom was pregnant. And uh, I was like eager, like waiting for this four-year-old to start asking questions because she was now visibly pregnant. And he wasn't asking questions because he was also, he was like one of these kids. And there's lots of kids like this who he's not, that wasn't that interested in bodies, but then he finally did. And, and very quickly I got, got a, you know, note from the dad to point out that there were just no books. So I wrote a story for this one child, which is really the only way I probably could have ever gotten into writing books because I find writing hard. I feel the responsibility of like trying to get it right. And I'm putting that in quotes because of course that's never really possible. And if I had set out to write, like, I'm going to try to write a book that works for like lots of different kinds of families. I never would have done it because I would have just been like, no, it's, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. But actually I was writing for one family who happened to need a lot of space because, because of, well, I mean, in this case, it was because of a sperm donor. And, but then what happened, so I wrote it for him and he was like, not that impressed with it. <laughs> the someone, child or the father? The just child. No, no, the father okay. was very grateful. Both, both parents were <laughs> Great, super yeah. grateful. The child who was four at the time yeah. was much more honest and was like, it's okay. I mean, the thing I loved is what he did in the family, they spoke both English and Spanish. So what happened was I wrote this thing and it was just in a binder. It looked like a zine and I took it over. And the first thing he said is he said, I thought you were bringing me a book, right? Because it was in a binder and like books are. And so, and then I started reading it and he wasn't that interested. So then his mom started reading it to him in Spanish. So she started translating, which, which then made it easier for me because I didn't have to hear my words that were all clunky. And he sat for like a few minutes and then he got up and he left the room and then he came back with paper and a stapler. And I remember this because I remember, I remember saying, are you allowed to use a stapler on your own? Because, and he was, and he stapled some paper together. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to make my own book about bodies, which I thought was great. Like that's to me, if you read a book for kids and the only thing it does is it makes them want to write their own book because they think you've got it wrong, then that, then you wrote a very, very good book for kids. So I did that. I read it with this one family, but then I started reading with other families. So I started reading with families who had adopted and with like, I know some single parents by choice and other families, including like heterosexual families where there was either a sperm or an egg donor or a surrogate used. And, and so it became clear that actually there's all these families that are missing, that aren't being, that don't have the books that, and what they were all doing was buying the book that's available and then reading it and then having to say like, oh, except that's not us, you know? So it's like, except we did it differently. And that's the part that I just don't like. You know, this was before I had kids of my own, but I had lots of kids in my life. And I just feel like kids should get to hear stories without all these exceptions, right? Without, because, because suddenly the message is, this book is the expertise. We are the weird ones, right? And as you said, it, it's actually a lie, right? It's a lie, <laughs> the story that a man and a woman love each other, choose to have a baby, immediately have one, and everything's great. Like, whose life is that? Right? I mean, there's like all this stuff in our lives. And it's weird when the books just don't look like life, including everything from like the messiness. It's like the houses are always neat. No one goes to the bathroom. And and because I grew up in the 70s, like there wasn't a lot of like media literacy, right? So I, no one was pointing out to be like, now I think, you know, we all, that's fine. We don't all find our lives exactly reflected in books. It'd be nice if we did. But also now we're pointing this out to kids. We're saying like, you know, we, we, we're encouraging them to think about like, how is this, how is our family different? And why do you think that our family isn't in that book, for example? One of the things I noticed right away too, is that in your book, the 
the sperm and the egg come together and share and share stories and combine where, you know, growing up in the eighties, sex ed was very much the winning sperm invades and wins and gets the prize and makes a baby. And it was very like, wow. Okay. You know, so I really like that. It's a a mutual act. And I also really enjoy that so many of the people in the pictures don't have sperm or eggs because, you know, for a lot of people, that's, that's the that case, representation right? is... of fertility is so great to see that yeah. people might not have either. Or, you know, my kid loves to count who has what. And so in the first draft, bodies either had sperm or eggs. And it was a friend of mine who's a doctor who was like, you should make one without either. And at first, yeah, I was thinking very literally. And I was like, well, but don't most bodies, like they would have one or the other. She very quickly said, well, I think it can just, it represents viability, right? You know, when they're born, lots of bodies don't have sperm at all. But even though... Most bodies that will have eggs are born with eggs. Doesn't mean any of them are viable. Doesn't mean that they're going to work. I was still in this mentality of like, I have to represent what's true for most people. And she helped me be like, no, you can actually just represent our stories. Like that's the sort of thing. It's not like don't prioritize this one story because it's the most common. In my work as an educator, I still think it's useful. And also, I, I want to share something about like attempts to like take gender or sex assigned at birth out of out of it. Right. So part of the way the book works is we don't say boys have sperm and girls have eggs. We say some bodies have sperm and some bodies have eggs. Right. And there's gender in the book. Like there's definitely kids that look like boys and girls. And so it's not about my work is not about erasing gender. But you don't do that because you don't need to do that. Because the truth is that there are some girls that don't have eggs and have sperm. There's some boys that have don't have sperm and have eggs. And, and as we just said, there's some boys and girls and men and women who don't have either. But what I think is really interesting is kids still will often, they'll, they'll immediately look at the bodies with sperm and say, so that's a boy and that's a boy. So they do their thing. They show you what they're learning, which I think is fine. I don't, I don't correct them. But they often, a lot of kids don't notice that there's a body without either. And so it's a really good opportunity to, to, to say to a kid, oh, do you notice this one doesn't have either? What do you think that means? And so it's this thing, I mean, because part of this, this project of building a better world, like the world that I want is a world where when we're dealing with infertility, the complexity and how that can be difficult to deal with isn't compounded by a lifetime of shame building around what it means to be a woman, right? So, I mean, this just to stick with the eggs and to talk about women who are socialized in a certain way, to be told that to be a real full woman, you got to have a baby, right? And, the, and that your body, you know, that your body is made to make babies. It's just such a messed up thing. <laughs> Thing to say because it's not true like who i mean what, because arbitrarily we, we decide that that you know on an individual level in, in on a population level we do need to reproduce on an individual level this idea that our body is made to make a baby our body's made for a lot of things so it's because i have so many friends who waited later to have babies and then of course had a lot of problems and and you know and, and many didn't get to make babies themselves and and I, it was very clear to me that, of course, that's going to be hard no matter what. But the fact that that they grew up being told, this is what your body's going to do. So it's just this tiny planting of a seed for kids that like, mm, yeah, bodies don't always work the way you want them to. Well, I know for myself, you know, being of a, a certain age and going through fertility treatments, the entirety of my sex ed as a child and as a young person was don't have sex. You will get pregnant. If you look at a boy, you will get pregnant. <laughs> right. Right. And then I couldn't get pregnant. I was like, well, right. 
I mean, I feel like I'm pretty well educated and I had no idea about how complex fertility is because all we had learned was don't look at boys, you'll get knocked up. Yeah. Really right. important. Uh, yeah. It is really important. And it's I don't think that's changed that much. I mean, maybe we use different language, but but it hasn't changed that much. There's still so much emphasis on quote, preventing teen pregnancy that we don't, and people would be scared to say, like, you would get a lot of pushback if you ever told in a book that uh, it's, not, it's, it's for a lot of people, it's not that easy to get pregnant. It takes a lot of times, right? I mean, it's the same with STIs, right? You also you have this idea, like, if you ever have unprotected sex, you will get some kind of infection. And no, you no, you won't. I mean, you might. And so there's a reason to protect yourself. But yeah, yeah, we're all lied to about all this stuff. I guess a lot of that, that nuanced, you know, the, the things that we grow, that we learn and accept as we get older, when you're teaching a 13 and 14 year old, you're like, okay, what's important right now? You know, I don't want them to get sick or, you know, and, and they don't have necessarily that nuance. Although, I mean, my next question is about your other two books and there's, there's room for, for tons of more information than we ever got when we were young, but yeah, there's that line between not getting the message lost and mm -hmm. wanting to protect them from certain things. And then also like, but there's also all this other stuff out here. And sometimes our, our sex ed is, you know, stuck into a few weeks or a few days of the curriculum, right? And that's yeah. the only time, <laughs> the only time we talk about it, where right. it should be those conversations that are happening all the time and right. not like that two week period where you sent the letter ahead to the, the parents and we're like, talking about sex this week, you want your kids in or out. Can you, I ask yeah. a question though? Yeah, absolutely. This is based on like ignorance around what, around, I, I never grew up in a farming family or on a farm. So this is a stereotype, but my stereo the stereotype is that if you're raising kids around farming, and I'm thinking both, I'm imagining both sort of like, I, I don't know how to distinguish animals and vegetables, <laughs> I'll sure, just put it that yeah. way, that kids learn the truth about certain things, right? So whether that's animals dying, animals being slaughtered, a crop that doesn't grow, and what that means in terms of finances and what we're going to have this year and not have this year. My, my assumption is that there's moments where kids are being, where kids are growing up and they're learning stuff about the world that they're not learning in school, right? In school, it's a more sanitized version. Is that, do you think that, is that true? Or is that just sort of a, like a fantasy sort of romanticism? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, you know, most kids aren't going to see birth at a young age, right? Where, right. you know, we're, we're on a farm and we're on a dairy farm. So there's, you know, cows are calving all year round. So, I mean, from a pretty young age, they've seen that birth is messy and <laughs> bloody and, mm -hmm. you know, looks painful. And sometimes the cows need help or sometimes they might need an operation, those type of things. I mean, there's, there's discussions around, you know, we don't have a bull on site. So, I mean, we talk to our kids about, you know, semen is sometimes a dinner table conversation right. or breeding you know when my kids are little like one of their first jobs was if they went out to the barn with my husband they like hold a lube while he goes to breed the cows so there's okay. there's discussions of what how how those babies are born in an artificial sense so yeah I mean I think that those conversations happen a lot I think where as farm parents we need to to look for opportunities. And that's one of the reasons we want to talk to you is look for opportunities to expand that and, and, and look for the similarities and also look for the opportunities to talk about, you know, 
how is this different in our lives? And what's the, you know, what's the difference between what we're seeing in the animal or plant world? And okay, so these things are the same, but when mm -hmm. you're talking about human relationships, <laughs> you know, things are And did your kids, when they were younger, did they start asking questions about the connections? Like, so they would know they would, they would get to see a calf be born. Would they ever, did, did that prompt questions about how babies are born or no? Is it sort of like, yeah, sometimes and other times, yeah, it, it seems like a completely separate thing. I suppose yeah. around the time that we were, you know, our older kids, when we were, you know, maybe when I was pregnant with the younger ones, then those things are coming up more often, but they get into right. that kind of like, you know, one track mind where it's like, okay, specifically this cow, right. you know, what right. happened with, with her or, or you're just looking at the placenta and you get distracted. Right. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I think the other sort of unspoken issue I have with, with this is that when livestock who are supposed to get pregnant don't, or bulls that are supposed to be able to make babies don't, we mm -hmm. eat them, which right. is not a great lesson about, <laughs> you know, infertility or choosing not to have children. Like, right. Your only value is reproductive or we will eat you. Yeah. 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 So it's, and yeah, we don't talk about consent or appropriate right. well, relationship. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're yeah. cows, you know, right. but yeah. But do any of your kids ever raise that? Like, do kids ever say like, hold on a second? Or is it because they've been, they've grown up in this context of their cows are part of that they wouldn't, like, I guess I'm just wondering, do kids, do kids ever, they wouldn't use the word consent, but sort of raise this, like, are they, do they are they okay with this? Or do they like this? Or do we ever, or, or have either you had an experience? Yeah, have, I guess the question is, have you had experience of one of your kids saying, why do we do it this way? I guess it's different. Sorry, Arlene. It's different no, for us ahead. because we do live service. We have a bull and we keep okay. rams for our sheep. So okay. animals come into heat and it's, it's not a romantic process by any stretch, right. but they don't, <laughs> right. you know they're standing for it. And we talk about, oh, she's standing, you know, because she is in heat, she will stand to be bred. Okay. Um, where right. I know a fair number of adults who have some real consent issues with AI, which AI artificial, artificial insemination. insemination. Okay, okay. Which yeah, so yeah, so what I was separate. talking about. I'm gonna about, let yeah. Arlene sort that one out because so I think it's similar though. I mean, because yeah, animals show heat or we cycle them into heat so that they are receptive and they have physical, they physically demonstrate the fact that they are at that point in their cycle. And right. you look, look for those signs that they are, you know, they're in a place where they you should be breeding them. Right. Right. So I guess that's another way that we could and probably should talk to our kids about the differences in animals and humans, right. That there is, or in a way, I suppose, you have to look for indications that the other person is interested <laughs> would be another way to, you yeah, know, like, <laughs> I mean, it gets, it gets some things, yeah, I, some I, things not, don't translate. Right, so I'm not sure that that's going to translate because of course the goal, yes. Um, yeah. But what does come to mind, of course, is that the thing that young people share around the world is their lack of access to rights and body autonomy, right? So a big part of sex education is teaching about body autonomy, right? Because what we want is kids who are aware when their boundaries are being crossed and who will speak up or speak to someone if they are and know that they are worthy and not deserving of violence and harm and being controlled. So a young child, so body autonomy, meaning you get to make the rules about 
your body, about how your body's touched, about how your body's talked about, et cetera. And then to say like, when you're younger, there's all sorts of examples of your body autonomy being ignored, right? So you don't have a choice if you're going to school or where you go to school. You might not have a choice of what to wear. You know, this thing that we say, nobody should ever touch you without your permission and no one should ever harm you or hit you or whatever the language we would use is, you know, if our kids, you know, run into traffic, we are going to do what we need to do, get this, prevent them from doing that. So I do what it would look like to connect. And maybe this doesn't serve, I should just out myself now. I am a vegetarian. I'm also not a vegetarian that's particularly sort of largely politicized. Having said that, I think because I am, I'm probably more open to thinking about letting my kid connect themselves to an animal who's not being given the choice to consent. I can guarantee that all of our kids are aware of the experience of being of, of not having choice, right? And even, you know, I'm a very over-involved parent who really centers body autonomy and still my kid is like, you never let me decide anything. Despite that, I'm always looking for opportunities for them to have some say. And I think that, that my kid feels that way and all of our kids feel that way because it is overwhelming the, the lack of choice they have, you know, and then we didn't teach them as they get older, that changes. So I do wonder, like, what do you, like, do you think, what would that, would it make it, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if it would make any sense to talk about like they don't have choices in the way. No, I don't think it would. I'm just sorry. This is kind of just trying to think about this, but I don't, what, what do yeah. you guys think about that? I think for us, certainly, and I mean, live, live coverage is different than. Can you tell, sorry, can you just tell me what that means? What um, live coverage is? I need the terminology. Doing it the old fashioned way. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like. It's yeah. called live uh, coverage. Having, yeah, having, yeah coverage. Because he's covering her. I mean, oh, he's. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I got it. I, 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 you just to had this to... too. <laughs> no, no, I got that. I got that. Um, but that's okay. Sorry, I'm just. I appreciate. I appreciate learning. So this is okay. When the cow is not fully in what we call standing heat, okay. she literally will not stand still for it. She will kick him and bail out. Okay. Um, okay. Wait, which wait, wait. I think is actually a pretty good example of consent because she is not down yeah you now yeah and so and, she bails so, out yeah so that's um, actually so that's a that's a totally great moment because <clears throat> of course and you'd always say like in humans it's different yeah but part of what we want to teach kids the you know the thing about consent that we don't always teach is we say consent is permission so make sure they say yes right yeah. but it's also about us right it's like so teaching ourselves like what is yes, no, or maybe feel like in our body? Because the weird thing about teaching consent with very, like with even like tweens is the consent suggest, like when we talk about consent, we're talking about like agreeing to do a thing, but how do you agree and, and like, and sort of, you know, informed consent, like, you know what you're agreeing to, but how do you agree to kiss someone if you've never kissed someone? How can you, you cannot know if you're going to like it. You might not like that particular person. It might turn out that you don't want to kiss that kind of person. So it's this weird thing where we teach about consent, like you got to make sure you know what you want. But before we've done any of this kind of exploration, the answer for me is like, we check in, what does it feel like on the inside? So that's actually such a, what you're saying is such a great, because you could talk about like, this cow is showing us something with their body, right? So what does it look like? Do you know, you know, the question for kids, for slightly older kids is, do you know what it looks like if you, if you have a crush on someone? what they look like when they're uncomfortable or awkward or uncertain or, or scared. What does their body look like? Cause we don't, the other thing that we do education wise that isn't great is we talk about like a feelings of as if they all show up the same way on our bodies, right? So as if we all will show that we're afraid 
or you know this idea that like well if someone's smiling then they're happy and they're going along with it no we're all by probably six years old we're very good at faking it so that's very interesting this this that would that would be a moment where you could be like you know and then and then you could say so what does it look like on humans yeah yeah <laughs> sorry that was I, that was no I, that's I, all right like, we're gonna I like learning I, new things i know i feel like we're going and we're gonna end up in lots of different directions today so can i'm I ask, gonna go oh yeah go, is it okay no, if I ask go a question? I, absolutely I yeah well so because because <laughs> you mentioned that like there's this so okay there's live live coverage and then ai mm -hmm. <laughs> so what is what is and you said there's people have issues with ai can i ask there are, that, like why or, if i can clarify there are non-livestock people who have issues about oh, whether okay. a cow can consent to AI, but oh right, okay, yes, with, sure. I mean, we you know we AI'd our cattle for a number of years as well, and when a cow is in standing heat, she will stand to be AI'd as well. I yeah. mean, it's um, it's one of those yeah, it's one of those things that mostly vegans bring up as a as one of the issues and they it gets politicized more can i ask this is i know this is this is now going to be boring for your listeners but now i'm just so fascinated <laughs> you're right. inviting me so is there a difference like like why ai versus live coverage i guess is so, ai is like, like less expensive or like like you have more control over that i guess yeah or, so it's for us it's more of a both a safety and breeding issue so we used to have a bull for cows that didn't get in calf through artificial insemination but then we had an incident several years ago where my husband was really badly hurt okay. by a bull that turned on him and so since then we've never had one on site but mostly for artificial insemination it's so you can make quality breeding decisions so you okay. are looking at there are catalogs of semen right and you're picking the qualities that you want like in your book you're looking for the story that you want to perpetuate in the offspring so if you have a cow maybe that has, you know, not the best feet, then you're going to try and pick a bull that's going to create offspring that, you know, takes the, the qualities that you like in your, your dam mm -hmm. and, and also improve the offspring by picking genetics that are going to create better quality. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. So much of this is not going to work in humans. Yes. I mean, people have tried it in humans, but it's not something we support. Yeah. No, um, no. Eugenics okay. is not, right. not okay for humans, right. but okay but so for livestock. So it's so interesting because, you know, there's that old stereotype of like, well, kids who grew up on a farm, they're like so much more, they know so much more, but like so much of this, I mean, I mean, I guess it is good. See, that's funny. See, I even I'm doing it. We're like, actually, the answer is more education is never a bad thing as long as kids are given the opportunity to understand things in context. But mm -hmm. it's just funny because now I'm having this feeling, you know, people, people who don't like my books say like, these books are confusing kids. And now I'm like, oh my God, raising kids on a farm is confusing. Kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's all confusing. That's the thing. It's all confusing, actually. And the people who yeah. complain are the ones who they just don't want us to talk about anything. Yeah, yeah, and you can't you can't oversimplify any of it, right? right? It, it's right. when people are wanting to have, for there to be only one answer yeah. that the oversimplification is actually, you know, you're you're closing your eyes to the reality. Yeah. <laughs> so so that yeah. doesn't that doesn't work either. Yeah. So that's going to bring me to your your two books for older kids. Sex is a funny word. What would you say would be your kind of target range for for that book? So yeah, so Second Word is the second book, and it's kind of seven to nine-year-olds. And so this book actually doesn't talk about reproduction at all. And it was a kind of response. We wrote it because there was really no book like this. It really went, all the sex ed books went from like, how do you make a baby to puberty? And kids as young as three and four have questions about how babies are made. They start noticing. <clears throat> and, and a lot of kids don't sort of start puberty until 
nine, 10, 11, somewhere around there, some are younger. And I was just like, there's all these years where kids are growing so much and they have questions, right? And their questions are like more, but, but they're not so much about reproduction. They're more about friendships and relationships and gender and, and bodies and safety and boundaries and consent and stuff like that. So, so, so the second book is sort of, yeah, it's like, so it's, it's sort of kids before puberty. And I've, I've found that like my experience with it now, because it's been around for five or six years is kids will let you know right away. Kids either find it boring or fascinating. And if they find it boring, some, a lot of times it's because they're not ready for it yet. So the way the books work is there's usually a comic and there's a little bit of sort of information, sex education kind of information, like this is what consent means. And then there's questions. And the questions are really the most important part. And the questions are designed for conversation between parents or caregivers and a child. Um, it's for so kids who are not yet at puberty, but are past being kind of toddlers. <laughs> Sure. So I have a question here because I need to know which book is next. Which of your books, if any, covers how the sperm gets to the egg in a heterosexual sex act? Because right now my daughter Mm -hmm. thinks that the two people lay head to head, which is shown in one of your illustrations. And that (laughs) this was the point. They swap and then they swap back and then one of them's pregnant. So we should we should explain that in the first book, which is for very young kids. So so in the first book, don't use the term intercourse, and we don't explain all the ways sperm and egg can get together because most four year olds wouldn't sit through that. It's boring. So instead, there's this illustration of these two bodies, and there's like sperm and egg like all around them because it's a because it's a kind of fantastical illustration. It's not a medical diagram. And absolutely, there were people who were like, "Is this going to be confusing to kids?" And so my response is, "Well, if a kid has asks." And they're reading with an adult. The adult will say, no, that's, the sperm doesn't float around you outside your body. I'm realizing that complicated ways that statement is. Anyway, eggs don't do that either. So, so the answer to your question, though, is the third book. So You Know Sex, which is the book that's sort of for puberty age kids. There's a big reproduction section. And, and there's an illustration. There's, there's, there's cartoon illustrations of intercourse of IVF, of IUI, in vitro fertilization, and intrauterine insemination, IUI. So yeah, there's very detailed illustrations. The way we do it is that we don't, what there isn't, like from the books that I grew up with, you'd sometimes see like a couple in bed and you'd see their full naked bodies. We don't do that. I, I don't do it for two reasons. One is that, I mean, this is a bit weird because I did, you know, I grew up with a parent who was a sex therapist I was surrounded by a lot of sexual material. Like there were, uh, there was like the joy of sex and there were, you know, and I think it's fine. I, mean, I think it's good for kids to see some things and to have some feelings, right? You get to see this and it's sort of titillating. I don't think that's harmful, particularly illustrations. I feel differently about videos and photographs. I think that that can, that can be, that can trigger other stuff. I, in my experience working with kids and talking to them about how they feel about things, illustrations and drawings are just different. They don't really, evoke the same kind of response. Anyway, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but also I don't really want to do it. So our books are very clearly, particularly the last, the puberty age one, where we see, you know, we see kids making out, like, you know, hugging and kissing sort of thing. But we were pretty pretty careful. Like, we don't want this to be titillating, which absolutely will be disappointing for some teenagers. But anyway, that's our choice. So we just see the, so we see body parts. So you see with the intercourse thing, you do see like, it's sort of like an internal, as if you have an x-ray. So we're seeing a penis inside a vagina. So yeah, that's the book that, that explains that. And I'll say that you could use that illustration 
like your kid who how old is your child the one who thinks maybe the heads go head to head four and five and what i'm hearing you say is to send them out to the barnyard with daddy when the cows are in heat and let him explain it as long as you're both yeah. doing it the only thing i'm against in that sense is that sometimes some parents want to abdicate full responsibility to like, no no you go to your other parent yes they could see that but also you could actually, you could show them the drawings, right? So, so I, cause I, cause you know, having done this work for a long time, again, I don't find young people get disturbed by these cartoon line drawings, especially since it's sort of, it's, they're just body parts. So you could just say, this is how it works. This is how some people do it. And right next to it is an illustration of actually a syringe and a tube that is inserted past the cervix. So, so you can also, and this is how other people do it. I was astounded, I have to say, as a parent of two young children who did fertility treatments myself, who raises livestock mm -hmm. for a living, how hard I found it to say sperm and egg the first, I don't know, 15 times we read that book. My kid doesn't care. She's not shocked at all because no. she doesn't know that she should be, which is my goal, that she's not like, woo, bodies. Right. But it's hard for us to remember because we're so in it. And so, of course, it's, it feels weird for you to you because you just haven't done it, right? Like, not the best part of my job, but a, a gift of my job is that I'm so comfortable talking about all these things just because I do it all the time. Not because I'm somehow more <laughs> together or advanced than anyone. I have the same issues and problems and the same challenges with parenting. But the language stuff, but yes, what you're saying is so true. And we, ha and we have to remember this, that this is other piece about people who are like, this is going to harm our kids or confuse our kids. Our kids, particularly younger kids, they haven't gone through adult sexual socialization yet, right? They haven't been exposed to, they've been exposed to some sexism and misogyny because they probably watch media, but not as much as we have. They haven't, they haven't, if they're still quite young, they haven't had that experience, hopefully, of being sexualized by other people in inappropriate ways, which is something that happens to many of us if we if we make it to adulthood. So as you're saying, like they just don't, their response to the things, they don't know. They don't know that they're supposed to be embarrassed, which is so great. And it's a great time to like to do some of this education, but it's hard for us to remember because we we're already there, right? We're all mm -hmm. already adults. And you can't you can't just get rid of it overnight. Like that's the, I mean I guess the other thing I would say is like there are a lot of parents who are like, I want to do this better. And I don't know how. And it's like, well it just takes time. Right. It's not, there's no it, there isn't like a book you can read or like a, you know, a pill you can take that's going to make you kind of like just comfortable and okay with all this stuff because, because we aren't in the world, right? The, the other things like none of us got the sex education we needed. So of course we're struggling as parents. And left, we talk I left you both silent. <laughs> yeah, no, it, that, that's sometimes a good thing. If we don't have anything okay. to say, it means we're okay. thinking. Can uh, we talk right, a little yes. bit? I, I didn't mean to rush <laughs> yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about your latest book? Sure. You know, sex. So like you said, it does cover reproduction, but it's a huge volume that has so much more in it. So can mm -hmm. you address some of the other things that are, are part of sex that don't often get included when we think about sex ed? Yeah, we should do that. Yes, because it's true. So most people, when they think of sex education, what they think of is like, okay, so I'm going to Kids get taught how babies are made, which means they yeah. have to be taught about intercourse and kids get taught what, what sexually transmitted diseases are and, and then maybe body parts, like they get taught the names of body parts. But that is, that is not what most kids want to know about, right? That's not what's, that's, so, so, so first of all, that's not all sex ed. So sex, to me, sex education is fundamentally about like learning that you have a body that your body has feelings and that you have thoughts about your body 
and learning how to be in the world with other people and other bodies in a way that like hopefully brings joy and, and minimizes harm, right? That is the large picture of what sex education is, right? So sex education is also about friends and friendship and learning how to make a friendship. Sex education is about crushes. But mostly, you know, early on in, you know, sex, there's a, there's a chapter called That Time You Learned About Sex. And the chapter is all about what it means to learn about sex. And the message in the chapter is there's two important messages. One is that learning about sex means learning about yourself. Because sex, because even if we just think about sex as sexual activity for adults, in order to, to have sex that is pleasurable and not harmful, because let's just say a lot of us actually engage in sex that is not great for us. Either we don't like it or we actually don't want it at all. And I'm not just talking about assault. I'm talking <clears throat> many of us haven't been told that we're worthy of feeling good for its own sake. Many of us haven't been, been told that the way our bodies work is just fine, even though what our bodies need is not what TV and movies say bodies need for sex. Right. So not everybody wants to do this thing. Not, I mean, I don't know if it's okay. I don't know how we can get, but just for, for an example, there's this idea that an orgasm is the most important thing in the world. Some people actually experience pain when they have orgasm. So they want sex without an orgasm. And then they feel bad about that, right? Because then they're not having orgasms, which means they're not having a good sex life, which means maybe their marriage is bad. And, you know, there's so much, so, so much judgment and shame around this stuff. To say nothing of the fact, we should also talk briefly about people who are asexual, right? So, so what we know now as a gift of activists is that there are people whose sexual orientation is asexual. This is the term they use for themselves. They've chosen this term. And these are people who, for whom sexual energy and activity is, is not pleasurable. It's not interesting. So asexuals may want intimacy. They may want long-term relationships. They may want families, but they don't want to do the sex things because it just doesn't feel good. And there's, you know, people, there's, there's now research on it. So one of the, one of the research, one of the big sort of survey researches suggests about 1% of the population feel this way. But because we live in a world that says everyone's supposed to have sex, that says that like a grown up, you're like, that even tells children in sex education, sex is something you sh you're going to, you're going to want to have when you're older. That's actually not true for all of us, but because we're all told that some people who just aren't that interested in sex are then themselves, they're pathologized. It's like, there's something wrong with you because you're not interested in sex, right? And that's not right. And so anyway, so in order to not have a world like this, we need to be able to figure out what it is we want. We need to know how to communicate that to the people we care about and who we're in relationships with. And that's what sex education is. And so for... 10 year olds, obviously that, the, you know, in my book, I'll say another thing, there's 432 pages and there's two pages that talk about sexual activity. So 430 pages out of this book do not reference sexual activity. I, I, oh, sorry, there's a, there is a chapter on kissing. So there's maybe 10 pages about sexual activity. Everything else is not that. It's about what are boundaries like? What does it feel like when someone crosses a boundary, what can you do if you have that feeling? What does it look like on someone else when you do that? How do you learn? There's a section about learning how to apologize to people. Um, there is also, because of the world we live in, a big section on safety at the end. And so that includes information about bullying and harassment. And it's written for sort of three groups, people who are experiencing something like bullying and harassment, people who are doing it, who are the perpetrators, and then people who are witnessing it. 
Because in order to, because again, most education is really just like, don't bully. And if you get bullied, report it as if we're going to solve this problem without actually bringing the people who are doing the bullying into the conversation, right? Because again, you know, I mean, for me, it's easier with kids. It's easier to have empathy and grace for young people, even young people who are doing violence. And that's messed up. I should be able to do that with adults too, but I'm just being honest that I can do with kids in an easier way. So there's that, and then there is a, and then there's a, importantly, there's a, there's a chapter on sexual, sexual abuse, so childhood sexual abuse, and certainly the hardest part to write. It's the part that I wrote most with professionals, right? So I had a lot of professionals who are, who work with young people who are, who have experienced violence and now are in the system because of that, but it needs to be there. It needs to be there. And I've had a couple families tell me that their child revealed that, that they experienced abuse after reading the book. So again, we don't see, we don't see anyone being abused, but there's scenarios, right? So we talk about online, you know, basically grooming. And there's a scenario with a teacher and a child and a student, and then there's a family scenario, you know? And so it's just sort of showing what we see is the adults, what we get sometimes called tricky behavior. So we're just like showing like this is, and trying to help kids get a sense of when, like we're trying to help kids notice when they feel like something's going wrong. And then of course we talk about what they can do because that's also complicated, right? We do this with kids too, which is if someone touches you in a way you don't like, go, go tell your teacher or go tell a police officer or go tell this person or go tell your parent. When the reality is that those people that we say go tell may be the ones doing the harm. So we have to tell kids, we have to tell them more people, right? The answer is we have to say, here's, you know, who are your trusted people? Which is certainly a thing as an educator that I encourage parents to be doing with their kids, which is like, do you have a list? Right. Like when people say, like, how do I keep my kids safe? Well, part of it is like, have you talked about this? And and for older kids, you know, by 10, it's like, do they have a list? Do, do you have a list of these are the these are the people that I trust and that I think you can trust? Do you trust them? Would you, you know, do you have other people to call and talk to? So that's so there's that. Then there's all the other like this consent and boundaries and I said crushes, love, there's a chapter on love. Yeah. So it's and not, so I, sorry, it, I just, I, I, I ended with the really dark stuff. I'll say no, one no, that's last okay. thing about that is that there's also a chapter on trauma because again, kids have already experienced trauma. Many kids have. And so it's just sort of reflect, it's some, something to reflect that experience. So they don't think that, you know, there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much of it is about teaching kids to trust themselves Mm-hmm. And giving them the the language, right, and the, right. the the skills to to communicate on all different levels. Right? So, in our private Facebook group, we had asked listeners what types of questions they had wanted answers to, and we had one listener who said, "My husband and I don't want our kids to grow up with any shame around sex. Both of us had the Mean Girls experience at school, and coupled with parents who have very strong Christian conservative values, meant we both had some issues with it that we had to work through." And we want to be able to talk more openly with our kids about everything and make sure they're comfortable talking to us with any questions. Having said that, I have no idea where to start. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think you are. start with that experience, right? I think you talk, I mean, it depends on the age of the kids, right? But so if we're talking about, we're talking about kids eight and up, I would be sharing, this is how I was raised, right? So I was raised, we never talked about sex. We never, and whatever it is, if it's like, we never talked about bodies, I never saw. So, so a, a, an example is for a lot of people, because what I want to say is like to share to, for this person who wrote this is like what most of us are trying to do is like just mess our kids up a little less than we were messed up, right? Just or like, in a different way. Or, or, or I'm aiming yeah, for yeah. more fun ways. More fun <laughs> okay. ways. Okay, good. Yes, because then there's more like, resilience. Right. 
in different ways. So, Fair, yes. Yeah. I do think that that's sort of the project that they're resisting. So classic examples for a lot of people grew up in a household where no one ever saw anyone naked. Doors were always closed. And then sometimes the next generation, there's more openness. So maybe they let their kids in, in the bedroom or the bathroom, they share a bathroom, whatever it is. So Corey, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you right here because yeah. it occurs to me that you're the perfect person to give me okay. an official answer in this. Okay, great. When does it start being weird to be naked around your kids? Because my kids do yeah. not grasp the concept of a closed door. Okay. And unless I'm going to go like the full like arrested development, never nude situation where I just wear <laughs> jean shorts at all times, when do I need to start yeah. really enforcing that? Because I don't care. I'm whatever. I've given up. So, okay. so, so the answer is if you don't care, then the answer is they're going to tell you, right? There is going to be a time. Although, wait, remind me how old your kids are? Four and five. Oh, that right. Might okay. be a while. Oh my God. You have so long. But there, but I promise you that certainly as teenagers of te the teenage age, teenage, as they become close to become teenagers, they are going to change this. Right. And and to the point where it might be a bit sad for you, and you may even want to talk about it to just make sure they know that I know your body's changing a lot and, and you deserve and you get to have privacy. And also I want you to know that I think your body's whatever beautiful or all our bodies are beautiful. And this a home can be a place where you can feel. You know, if you want to sit on the couch and not on the couch, fully naked, maybe, maybe it's a towel. But anyway, every family has different rules. Um, like, 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 like in, in mine, it's like, you can't be fully naked when you're eating a dinner. Right? It has to be. But because part of the answer, because a lot of kids, young kids are like, well, what's the point of clothes? So part of my answer is, well, it's actually to protect our bodies a little bit. But I do think, yeah, I, so the answer is there isn't an age. There isn't like it's 10. And in my experience, kids usually, you can let your kids lead that or you leave that, right? So if you get to a point where you're uncomfortable, then I think it's fine. And also you can say it, right? And so this brings, this, this connects to the, the question from Facebook, which is that <clears throat> it's really helpful for our kids to hear our own sort of thinking through and struggles with boundaries and bodies and sort of sexual values. So for example, to say, I was told that if you even look at a boy, you're going to get pregnant. I now know that's not the case. I also would prefer for you to not get pregnant until X. I mean, you know, every family is going to have their own thing. But to start with that, to start with like, we were raised this way, and particularly the mean girls point, right? It's really important for kids to hear about the ways that we were mistreated and harmed and how we dealt with it because we've survived it, right? So many kids experience, certainly my experience of being bullied and harassed is that we're isolated. We're the only ones that no one's really, no one's ever really, been treated this badly and we're not sure we're going to survive it because kids you know kids are so weird with us parents because they actually pay really close attention to us they actually do want to know what we think so there in canada there was some survey research where they asked young people who do you want to learn about sex from and parents were either number one or number two and most parents are surprised by that because of course our kids also tell us that we're wrong all the time and they don't want to listen to us, right? So, it, so it's confusing, right? They send us mixed messages because they're, they're growing and developing. But part of the problem is that they actually think that we're more together than we are, partly because we keep it together, right? Like when we're, if we're dealing with loss, whatever it is, we keep a lot of things from our kids because that feels like, the, like an appropriate boundary. So I think the place to start is with all of this stuff about like we grew up kind of being mistreated. We grew up confused. And then it's about sharing. The other thing is, the other thing I want to say, and this is true for our books, is our books don't tell you what to tell your kids about sex. Because I don't know what you want to say, right? So if you want to say sex is, for us, sex is something that has become an important part of our relationship. It's also something that 
we think is safe for marriage or whatever it is, then that's what you should tell your kid. Like, don't let anyone else tell you what to tell your kids. Uh, obviously, the way that I work and the way I do sex education is also to remind all of us that our kids are not us. So we don't want to we don't want to set them up thinking like we're I'm going to tell you how to have a healthy heterosexual monogamous marriage for the rest of your life because our kids might not be heterosexual they might want to be monogamous they might end up being trans or genderqueer in some way so you want to teach your kids you want to make sure your kids know about the world broadly because what you want your kids to know is that they have a future and it's hard for kids like me who were queer i didn't know that word back then kids who don't see themselves in media in their schools in their families it's easy to think they don't have a future right and 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 like culture and social media is making that a little bit better because we're seeing like every kind of you know if you look at like you know musicians and successful actors like there's so many more of them that are out as gay or sometimes asexual or trans or queer or non-monogamous or whatever it is but still for a lot of our kids they don't see that and so they think that that the only way to survive is to be like the people around them and if you are already pretty sure that you can't be like the people around you that is something that puts that makes your life precarious so i do so while i think so it's important that we you know when you're doing sex education with your kids it reflects your values we also want to I, I hope that those values include there's all sorts of ways to be and you are worthy and your life is important. Yeah, that leads really well into the question that I had next, which is about gender. And both of your books for older kids go into more depth on that. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are probably, you know, my kids have maybe already passed me in terms of, of what they know versus what I know. I feel like I'm learning from your books as much as they are. The other day, my 11-year-old called someone transphobic. And I'm sure that when I was 11, I did not have that, <laughs> that vocabulary. Oh, no. So, oh, my God. I definitely didn't. Yeah. So can you teach us a bit about gender so that we're not, that our kids don't have to to teach us any all of the things or that we don't have? To? I can. I do want to say, though, I actually think it's great to have your kids teach you things. I know this is kids love being in the position of being the teacher because it's a position of power. So it's a great thing to, I mean, of course, it's not always great as a parent to navigate that, but it is this great moment of shift. And of course there's, you know, and I just want to say for people who already have older kids, like, yes, and they're going to roll their eyes sometimes, but if you get them away from their friends and in a kind of quiet moment, they can be very generous and have grace for us also. So yeah, so I mean, what, what's important to know? So I guess the important thing, I think the fundamentals to know is that we were raised to be told that there's two sexes, right? So that, and, and that, that they are, that you, that you are either male or female. That's not actually how it works. So the word sex in this case is a word that's assigned to you. So when you're born, someone looks at your body and they just look at the outside. And if they see a penis and scrotum or testicles, uh, scrotum, then they say, that's a boy. And if they see a vulva, they say, that's a girl. And that's, but what they say is that that's a male, that's a female. So you are assigned a sex. Our bodies are actually much more complicated than that. So there's a lot of bodies that it's not clear. Is that a, is it a very small penis? Is it a very large clitoris? Is it a vulva or is it a scrotum? And it's actually quite common, but because no one tells you that, people think it's, no, that never happens. And so one term for bodies like that, those bodies sometimes get called intersex. There's also another term called SD, which stands for differences of sex development. And so the thing that we all need to know is that, that when we're fetal, it's all the same stuff, right? Our bodies, all bodies grow from the same stuff. And then it just changes in different ways. And most bodies like can be visually 
kind of categorized, but not all bodies. And there's a bunch of bodies sort of in the middle. So there's more than two sexes. There's actually more than male and female. So that's one thing. Then for gender, there's more than two genders, right? So again, we're at, if you know if we're assigned male at birth, then we're called a boy, and if we're assigned female at birth, we're called a girl. And as it turns out, oh, I guess the important thing to know about gender is the one difference is gender is a word that describes how you see yourself and how you feel. So gender is not like there's there's no there's no markers in the body of gender. Right? There are markers in the body that, me- that the medical profession has decided are markers of sex, but not gender. So gender is this thing that describes both sort of like how we feel inside, sort of on a spectrum of masculinity and femininity, how we choose to look, right? So how we wear our hair, what we dress like, how we, how we talk, how we move, identity and expression. So gender is everywhere. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. Different people have different feelings about this. But it's all more complicated than two options, right? So the fact that we're told there's two options is called a binary. So it's called the gender binary. And the reality is, is that there's just more, right? So people who understand themselves as women or young women or whatever it is, I've never met a woman that feels like she actually fits the category, like fits the expectations of what a woman, woman is. I've never met a man who feels that way either. And that's because the boxes and expectations are too narrow, right? They're just words. It's why our second book is called Sex is a Funny Word, because I think that it's important that we remember that these things are actually just words. We are people and we're complicated and we get to be all of these things or some of these things. And a lot of us fit just, a lot of us fit more or less in those boxes though. So there's like, again, this isn't about like, we're all everything, right? There's some kids that come out that get called a boy that loves sports and <laughs> rust housing and don't cry and all these other things, which of course are the result of socialization and not their, their genes, but, but are very happy that way. And there's girls who, you know, feel comfortable in sort of these, whatever kind of more traditional feminine roles. And that's great, right? It isn't about people. It's not, this is, the goal of talking about gender is not that people need to be anything other than who they are. The problem, the reason we do this work, the reason we have these conversations is the idea that this boys and girls, men and women, we think that way because all of us are very susceptible. All of us can be bullied into behaving the way we're told to behave, right? So the fact that at a certain age, you know, kids seem to like kids seem to veer off like all like this group of kids is playing soccer and doing this and this group of kids is doing more relational stuff. And so we call this group boys and this group girls. That's mostly a result of the fact that we subtly tell kids that are called boy to behave this way and kids that are called girl to behave this way, right? And when we tell kids, you can be whoever you want, you can like what you want and who you want. And what we want for you is to you for you to figure that out for yourself. And we're going to put all these options in front of you. And we're going to help you navigate how to do this safely and not hurting other people. So that's the boundaries and not bullying and all that kind of stuff. What we see is that kids, kids want more. Right? And that's why we're seeing way more kids saying, I'm not a boy or girl, like I'm non-binary, which is a term that gets that people use. Most of that word, the, this word non-binary is just a term for kids, but also adults who say like, actually this, the, the two choices doesn't work for me. So saying you're non-binary doesn't mean you look a certain way because you might be non-binary and have long hair and like to wear makeup and you might have breasts or you might be a non-binary and not have those things. Or you might be non-binary and look kind of like androgynous sort of somewhere in the middle. But non-binary is just an identity that says like, I, like these two choices are, are really a problem for me. So 
I, I, I don't know. I mean, this is the question you asked is a question that you could spend a year studying. So yeah, is that, that, how was that? Do you have any questions? That, yeah, that, that does cover a lot of, you know, at, at least a, a starting point for a lot of us. I think, yeah. yeah that's can, I say, can I say one other thing about, again, sure. everyone deals with this stuff differently, but for me, what I want us to attend to is not the politics and even is not the language it's how things feel, right? So for me, I'm someone who's queer and gender queer, and then the term non-binary would be the one that fits for me because of my age, because I, I didn't know that term. I took a long time to use that, but I now use they, them pronouns, but forever I used he pronouns because that's what I was called when I was a kid. And the truth is that that, that pronoun doesn't always feel bad. When people say he, it doesn't always feel bad. But then I had a kid and people started calling me dad and it was really awful. And so I should, be clear about like, what do we mean? Like, what's, so what that means for me is like, I would be called the dad and I, would, I wouldn't be able to talk anymore. And I would go home and I would not think that I was a good parent or a good person. And I would sometimes cry and I would just feel terrible about who I am. I wouldn't know what was going on. I feel, so which, so that gets called like, sometimes people call it gender dysphoria. There's all different terms, but the point is people are using language that is really hurting me and is making it hard for me to move through the world. That's the stuff I want us to be aware of with our kids, right? And it's why it's like, what's why I'm not concerned. Some people say like, we well, can't let kids like keep changing their pronouns or doing this and that. I don't know why we can't. I mean, if you don't have the energy for it, then you can just be honest about that and say to your kid like, you know, no, I can't, I can't do that. But, but if, but, but the question is like, what, like why, right? If kids want to just try stuff on, that's great. I also want us just to be mindful of the fact that it's not, it's not just a preference for a lot of us. It's, it, it's, you know, I, I'm not, I don't like using psychological terms, so I'm not going to, because I think sometimes we're like, oh, well, if it's a, if it's, if it's a mental health issue, then we'll do it. It's like, well, actually, if it's makes it harder for you to live in the world, then let's try to care about each other and try to make it easier for us to live in the world. So, so that's the other thing I want to just say is that, that there's, that for some of us, it, for, you know, for some of us, it's a really big deal. And it's the difference between actually being able to pay attention in school, being able to trust our parents feeling like we have anywhere to belong. And for other kids, it's more about wanting more choice, which is also great. But, but I, think, I think, unfortunately, the way that all of this gets talked about in public is awful, right? That in the media, obviously it's terrible because I just don't hear a lot of care, right? When I hear people yelling and screaming about this or trying to ban books with that, like, I'm not, of course they say they, they say, well, they don't even say they care about kids. They say they're protecting the kids, which of course they're not, but, so I, I guess that, I guess that's my last sort of pitch is like when we're thinking about gender, let's just center caring, right? And and so that's also where I would start a conversation, right? So if I had a kid that was asking for things, I would really start with, so what does it feel like when you know this happens when when the teacher says boys and girls, right? And and I'd, I'd ask them like, what does it feel like in your body? What does it do in your mind? How does it you know change the way you can pay attention? Because that's there's a real, you know, because it, it's not just a political fight, right? It's actually, this is, this is based on our bodies and, and how we, and, and trying to make more of us okay in the world. I don't know. I don't know. I'm never, I'm not good at endings. So I'm just going to stop talking. Corey, I, one of the things I really valued about the, what makes a baby and the, I don't want to say asexual nature of the drawings, but the, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. lack of, of, gender definition in the drawings is that it gave yeah. me the chance to say to my kid you know because this whole bullshit about kids will be confused about this mm -hmm. my five-year-old is never confused about anything 
not once. <laughs> she yeah. knows what's going on, damn it. Was that it gave me the ability to say, you know, some people have sperm. They might look like boys if they tell us they are girls or that they are just not boys or girls. We believe them. Right. Some people might not look like girls and might actually be girls and they will tell us they're girls and we will believe them because we believe when people tell us who they are Mm -hmm. and as someone who has gotten misgendered a number of times because of being tall and having a lower voice and short hair you know who i do fully identify as female Mm -hmm. but just let people tell you who they are and then just believe them and this idea of consent and and caring but not allowing kids to tell us who they are i mean yeah my kid doesn't like wearing jeans i don't make her wear jeans it seems really weird to go from that to being like but you look like a girl so damn it that's what you're going to be you know and i get that it's it's hard because we weren't raised with that for for most of us but it's true. Oh yeah. I mean, almost all of us were raised with that. So, so it, it, it is like the way you just said that is so beautiful. And, and again, of course it seems so simple, but it is a challenge for many people. Is that something did that did, getting to that point and choosing to talk to your kids that way? Was that just something that came naturally? Was it a result of intellectual work? Like, like, so do you know how you got there? Why, why, how, like, do you know what I mean? Given that you were raised, you weren't raised that way. You didn't know that. No one, no one told me that either, right? I have a hippie mom. I think that <laughs> most of my most of my socialization came from outside the home. You know, I was raised by a strong single parent who my mom worked as a chimney sweep when I was a kid. Like we were okay. not a real stereotypical Midwestern family, right. but also. The the value of people is diversity and curiosity and creativity, and we need to let people have that space. And I, I, I think because of my personality, I find this diversity and especially how much it's growing. I mean, my kids go to a school, the graduating class last year was less than 60 kids. There mm-hmm. is a young person who identifies as male appears to be biologically male on the high school wrestling cheerleading team wearing Mm -hmm. a dress and people Mm -hmm. leave them alone because who gives a shit and that's (laughs) i mean it's magic to me that we can just see what these people offer Mm -hmm. without crushing them and i grew up with you know i grew up with friends who got sent to straightening camps and right Right. We're, I mean, literally tortured for wanting to have sex with other men, which seems really fucked up. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's, it's fucked up. And I just, there are so many horrible things that we can't change in the world Mm -hmm. that I don't want to add things that I can change to that. And so I would rather that my kids grow up like that. And to look yeah. at all the things that they might not understand with curiosity and excitement to get to learn about it, because how cool is all of this rather mm-hmm. than going, oh, it's not like me. Right. Like, right. if you don't get it, don't have sex with them. Like, yeah. 
fine. (laughs) (laughs) Like they're not going to make you do it. If they're going to make you do it, that's unhealthy and you shouldn't do it unless you're into that and you're consenting to not consent and then cool, do it. Right. You know, but just leave people the fuck alone. Be excited, be interested in who they are, unless they don't want to tell you, then leave them alone. That's thanks. Long story short. No, thank you. Yeah. I mean, because I think that this is anyway, I just think that's important. I appreciate you sharing all that and for people to hear it. So speaking of gender non-conforming kids, and it is like I hear the older generation around here going, Well, there were never gay people when we were young. Like the right. fuck there weren't. <laughs> They've always been there. It just wasn't safe yeah. for them to be gay or for them to tell you about it. Cause I guarantee yeah. that people have been doing what they do for generations. They Forever, just yes. tell you. Yeah. And so now I know even in our small rural area, a number of gender non-conforming kids or gender mm-hmm. fluid kids and adults. And it's, you know, I might not understand it, but it's none of my damn business. Anyway, so that we know that resources in rural areas are harder to find both the mental health resources. And I had not realized how many physical dangers there can be to gender non-conforming kids or trans kids, even as far as, you know, chest binding and things like that. I had mm-hmm, yes. no idea how unhealthy that can be if done badly. What support is out there and how can we what are good ways to access that for us and our children? So there's I mean, there's some national groups. There's a lot of stuff online. I mean, I mean, again, once you have kids who are like teens, I often get questions from parents, but like, I need a good resource for this for my like 16 year old. And they already, if they're online, then they already have probably found some good resources because they're much better than we are at finding their people online. So one of the groups that I really like is a group called Trans Families. They're based in... Seattle or they're on the West Coast and they do like online support groups and they, I think they run a conference every year. There's a bunch of organizations that are often, they're started by parents um, who have gender non-conforming or non-binary or trans kids who themselves are not those things or gender normative. And they were like, okay, we got to figure this out. And how am I going to advocate for my kid in school? And how am I going to keep my kid safe at camp? Or how am I going to support them in trying to be in the sports teams that they want to be in? So, yeah. So I think like the big message is like what you've already said, which is like, there's lots of people who are going through this exact thing with with a kid, your kid's exact age, maybe not where you are. And all of this is so dependent on where we live. Although I also want to share what I think, I mean, you've shared in our other conversations is, the, you know, stupid, narrow-minded stereotypes about rural versus urban suggest that, like, if you're queer, it's much better to grow up in a city. It's just, since you've started swearing, I'll say it's bullshit, right? It's total bullshit. And so I absolutely know, I have friends or people in my life who grew up rurally in the southern United States who, who felt much safer in the town they grew up in than when they went to visit San Francisco, Right. So there's that. We need to talk about that sort of class. It's a class thing. And I don't know what they, there must be a term for that kind of discrimination against rural. But having said that, as you said, like they're, they're, they're not, I mean, the, the, but the resources aren't there. The money isn't there. If you, what I, what I would want to do is let me go and ask a few people and I can give you some other places to go. But, but Trans Families is a really good one. There's other organizations. Like it really depends on the kinds of support you're looking for. So and I don't know who runs it, but there's a thing called Welcoming Schools. It's a US-based thing that's really about helping parents navigate supporting their kids in schools so there's you know there's like there's like lesson plans that they can send teachers and stuff like that so much of 
And then, you know, people, I mean, people just email me. They can also just email me if they have a question. And like, you know, I mean, the thing is, if you're not, if you're kind of gender normative and straight, and then you have a kid that's saying, this is not who I am, it's a lot to figure out because you might not have gay people in your life. You might not have trans people or non-binary people in your life. So it can be helpful just to kind of talk to an adult who is that or who has a lot of those people, because there's all sorts of things like, like, you know, how do you talk to the family members about it? How do you navigate? And, uh, and in in our old, in the third book, you know, sex, there is a chapter, it's called sharing, but it's about disclosure, basically, because this is a big question. It's like, a lot of people say like, so you have a kid who's now like saying, you called that kid a boy their whole life. And now they're like six or seven or whatever. And they're like, I'm not a boy. And I want you to do this. And you may be okay with this, but you also may know that you may have family members that are not okay with this. And so then that becomes for some people, this question about like, well, how sure do I have to be, right? The thing that we do as parents, which is totally, it's hard not to do, like we want our kids to have a future and we want to, and we imagine, we try to imagine our kids' future. So what I see is, so you do have the parents, they're like, no, the only future for my kid is the straight future where they get married and they have kids. But then you have a lot of parents who are like, okay, I want my kid to have this future. If they're gay, if they're trans, that's okay. But then they, what we do as parents is be like, okay, so I'm going to go find the successful gay and trans people, and I'm going to imagine your future to be that future, <laughs> right? And we can't really imagine our kids' future, but what we want to be doing, the, the support we need is about like helping them know that there is one and that we can help them get there and that things are always open. Oh, I think I, I, think I was probably sharing this thing about parents. So what we do as parents is we can actually then subtly direct our kids into another kind of normativity is a way of putting it, right? So, okay, okay, so you're not straight or you're not a girl. And so I'm going to work through that. Okay, now I have a son. So now I'm going to, I want the best son I can have. And this is what it means like to be a son. And again, particularly with younger kids, we don't, we really want to leave things open. We want to let them know that we love them and that we're here to show up for them. And now I remember that I was talking about this disclosure piece. So Austin the question for us is like, does this mean if my kid is saying this, if my kid is saying I'm not a boy, does this mean they're trans? And the answer with young kids is always like, we don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and I can't know, right? And you can't know because also your kid doesn't know because, because the truth is that none of us are one thing, right? That we do have this new language of like being your true self, right? So this is the language that talks about with trans youth sometimes is letting kids be their authentic selves or their true selves. I don't use that language because I don't know what it means because I'm 52 years old and I couldn't tell you who my true self was. What does that mean? Does that mean that I was lying when I thought I was something else? We learn more about ourselves and we become something different. Like, like people tell us who they are. So if our kid is saying, if coming and saying, like, I don't think I'm a girl, I'm a boy. It's like, okay, well, let's start having those conversations. And you are still the parent and you may decide we're not going to bring grandma and grandpa into this just yet, or we're not going to, you know, and now if your kid is saying, I want them to, maybe your kid has a very close relationship with their grandparents, then you do need to address that. But in the absence of them telling you what they want, you can decide, okay, let's just, so a lot of people, for example, say like, let's just try this at home and see what it feels like. And then maybe they expand it. I share that as an anecdote of the kind of thing that when you get to talk to other parents who've been through it, they, they, they can help you with that. Because it does all seem new. But nowadays, there's lots of books about like gender and parenting. There's also lots of documentaries. So I think, I think like the reason, I guess the other thing I want to say is like, I'm also pretty anti-expert. So I would rather parents find any documentary on like whatever, Netflix or wherever it is, watch it, 
And then if it's appropriate to watch with their age kid, maybe watch it together and then use that as a conversation. Because really that's the other thing is like, you know, if parents have a big role in this work, right? It isn't about like farming it off to gender experts or whoever. And I say that to say that like, often parents feel like, well, I don't know enough, right? I'm not gay. So how can I raise a gay kid in a healthy way or whatever. And I just, I, I, I always tell them, I don't think that's actually the way it works, right? You don't need to be, you know, because the other thing is you're not sharing your direct experience with your kid anyway. You're sharing your values. You're sharing problem solving. You're sharing how you build relationships, how you stay safe. You don't need to have their exact experience. Okay. I mean, it's good to know that there are resources out there and yeah. that, you know, sometimes we want to know, okay, I just go to this one website or, you know, read this one book and that's the answer. But you know, as in all aspects of parenting, there's, there are no right answers, which is both great and frustrating, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and where are there resources? And there, there probably are, but it might be harder to find that really reflect your family, right? Because again, sure. most yeah. of this stuff is super white and very urban, right? It's written for, written for like, go to the LGBT center. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, what <laughs> yeah. if I don't have one within yeah. like, like It's six hours miles. away. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, whip down to your closest Planned Parenthood. Like I think right. ours is two and a half hours away or something. Yeah, yeah. I know, Corey, thinking about, you know, what you asked me about my overarching parenting philosophy is basically harm reduction. What I want yeah. my kids to be more than anything is happy and yeah. safe. Yeah. Everything else is after that. And so to me, I know one of the biggest resources that I'm trying to build for my kids is adults they can talk to who are not me and daddy because- mm -hmm. I don't really want to think about my 14-year-old having sex, but if my 14-year-old is having sex, I want them to know an adult that can help them get birth control and right. be safe and be healthy. Right. And right. Ugh. At, at four and five, thinking about them being old enough to have sex is terrifying oh, on I a see. number yes, of levels. I, I, but right, right. you we, might want to close your ears for the next question. Though. No, no, Arlene, okay. one more question. <laughs> I'm, I'm inserting my question. There's nothing you okay, can do about ahead. it. And then you okay. can all right, ask all your ahead. questions. Yeah. Can we very quickly debunk the concept that you will, you or anything else will turn your kid gay or trans or. Yes, sure. I, bullshit. Right. That's it. Okay. Right. So for people <laughs> who care about science, there's, there's no, there's never been a rigorous demonstration in any, no researcher of, in any field has demonstrated that any amount of material and influence can make a person a thing. Just so, so we have no science that demonstrates that. And then I would just say anyone who's actually paying attention to the people around them. I don't know how anyone who's actually paid attention while raising a kid could think you could make a kid something. Right? I can barely make my kid brush their teeth. I'm certainly not going to, I can't make my kid, can you make your kid have their favorite color be pink or blue or purple or whatever. So, but what we, what, what, what I think the piece that people sometimes miss is of course, we can bully kids into pretending they are something they aren't. Right. And that's what most gender socialization is, right. It's subtle. It's not, we don't think, you know, people don't think of themselves as bullies, but subtly, when we tell certain kids to stop crying and we tell other kids that it's okay, or we pay more attention to the relationships and friendships of this kind of kid and not that kind of kid, we are subtly bullying, pressuring them into acting a certain way. So it is true that we can, that kids will pretend to be something they aren't. 
but you can't, you just can't, you can't make someone something that they aren't. You just can't. You can make them live their whole life, a very miserable life, pretending they're something they aren't. So I think the thing that people mis misunderstand is they think that the way it was, in quotes, everything was simple back then. But no, back then, people just, people just pretended more, right? And so now people pretend less. Or, or not all people, a lot of us still pretend, but, but once given the option, once kids are told, well, you can be a girl and be whatever, president or engineer or whatever, guess what? A lot of girls want to be more than just a girl, right? Like that is the other thing. I think, I think the other thing I'll share, this isn't really an answer to your question, but like, is like the categories are limited. And the problem is the categories. There's nothing wrong with, you know, if you feel like a girl and a woman and that's, that's like positive and empowering to you, that's great. But, but let's also recognize that the category of girl and women, woman is just too small, right? So, and let's not, and let's not mistake gender and, and, and society with chromosomes, right? So I, I understand why scientists want to talk about sex on a chromosomal level. It's still unimaginative and also wrong, right? So now, now they're actually, of course, as we're learning more than we're learning about genetic variation. So but nonetheless, I understand why we do that. But when we're talking about the playground or the classroom or wherever, it's a different situation. So I don't know what else you can say to people who are who are afraid of that or who think that you can be something. But I do think it's worthwhile to name the pressure thing, right? So when people say like, well, I'm worried that my kid's being pressured to, so to such and such. Sure, your kid may be being pressured to either be more gender normative or be less gender normative, depending on their social scene. All of that pressure exists. It doesn't just come from peer pressure. The little pet peeve is parents love talking about peer pressure as if we aren't a giant source of pressure, as if teachers and religious leaders and elders and grandparents aren't a huge source of pressure. Peer pressure is just one part of the pressure kids experience. So I do think it's it, we have to name that, right? We can't, we can't like this idea of like, well, we just naturally flow into whoever we are. Well, that's not how it works. So what, what do we want to do? We don't want to tell kids you should be this way or you should be that way. We do want to help kids notice when the decisions they're making are based on pressure versus some internal sense of what they want, right? Which, by the way, is also really great for sex education, right? Because same thing when they get to the point of making decisions about having sex. We don't want them to have sex because everyone else is doing it. We do want them or whatever. I mean, it's like in my world, it's okay for them to do that, you know, if they have the safety piece when it's something that they want. And I'm speaking generally, of course, because I will also, I also have a kid who's not there yet. And I will probably feel differently when they are there. I mean, that's the thing is also, if these are people in your life, you know, the question is like, are, do you really want to, you know, spend your time talking back to this? And if there are people in your life, then maybe you do. I say for for the for the podcast listeners, you they can't see that you're shaking your head. No, <laughs> there but, are sometimes uh, though when those conversations are worth having, right? There might yeah. be, you know, say say a grandparent or a exactly. someone in your life who has an opinion that it might be worth doing a deep dive into that conversation. Or, but, yeah, or you feel I mean, like you have to for your kid, right? Yeah, that's right. Like, yeah, or yeah. to protect yeah. your child or your family, that those are conversations that you need to have, and that can either open their mind or clarify to you what your family's boundaries are. So yeah, those conversations, you have to decide for yourself what's what you what you want to go into and and if that person is someone that you you have to have that conversation with or if you can just let that go. I mean, you can mm -hmm. let them know that you're you don't don't have the same opinion, but you don't have to you don't have to try and convince everybody. Right. 
So this is where I was going to say, if Katie wants to, to check out for a few minutes, we're going to talk about the teens. So this I have is, by the way, it's some very nice modeling of consent culture. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So I know that my teenagers are growing up in a much different world than, than I did. I mean, it seems like we've had lots of conversations about, you know, people sending nudes and mm -hmm. the accessibility of pornography. I mean, it's not just like a magazine that somebody found stashed in the basement anymore. Like this, yeah. these things are accessible all the time for, for our older kids. So what do we do as parents to help them stay safe and to navigate that world when we're talking about all of these things around sex? Yeah, so I'll say the thing that's easy to say when I'm not talking about my own kid and harder when I'm in being a parent, which is of course we can't keep our kids completely safe, right? Yeah. So, so that's the reality, right? So because they need to be independent and they need to take risks. So that's the kind of hard existential piece that as parents, we have to just navigate. And the way I'm trying to do that is to think about how many dumb, risky things I did, but I knew I had someone I could talk to. And so I survived, right? Because of course, now that I'm a parent, like, like things that are half that risky freak me out the idea of my kid doing those things. So, I mean, so the things you mentioned for sure, I'm like this idea of like sending, I mean, I mean, digital media and the internet and the way that that never goes away and pornography. In our, in, in the, in the, in the third book, we talk about both of those things. You know, my line on, on like sending naked pictures, first of all, I mean, I, I think part of his education, right? So kids need to under, actually understand that if they were to send, if they are under the age of consent, wherever they are, and they send a naked picture of themselves to someone that may be legally considered child pornography. And it doesn't happen a lot, but it absolutely has happened that the child who is sending it perhaps to a, you know, a romantic partner, completely consensual, they were both happy with it. And, and maybe it doesn't even get shared in a bad way, but a parent or a teacher, someone finds it, they actually could be arrested. They could be charged with creating child pornography and the person who received it could be charged with possessing child pornography. So they just need to know that. And, and you can do that, you know, if I had a teenager and I was talking about that, I part of what I would talk about is like, I, that, that actually doesn't even seem right to me, but that is the way the law works. So you should know this, that I wish you had some control. You know, again, so I'm thinking of an older teenager who this is gonna be part of their lives and they have a right. But because of this, it's a good idea just to wait until you're older to share any naked pictures of yourself on any digital flat platform, right? So our kids have to know. I mean, the thing is a lot of kids now know this, like they have to know obviously that if you send, if you've digitized something, it's it's almost impossible to make it disappear forever from everywhere. So well, it's different than giving someone a photograph, although now they can scan it. So there's this thing about like what goes online stays online forever. And I think it's an important thing for kids to know. And again, I do think, I mean, a lot of kids just know it. So that's my sort of line about that. So I just make it about the potential risks and not about the, and not about the issue of like, is it okay to share your sexual self with a partner? Because part of what a lot of parents want, and this, this came in the question from the face that you got on Facebook, is they don't want to add to the shame, right? So we don't need to say like, that's a terrible thing or something like, I mean, another thing a lot of parents do is that they kind of transmit their own shame around their body, which is like, oh, I couldn't imagine ever showing someone a naked picture of myself. Like, so I do want to say, you know, the positive in this is if you have a kid who feels good in their body, that's a good thing. And, and if they, if they want to share those good feelings with someone else, and they know how to pick someone who's trustworthy, that's also a good thing. So there are some positive parts of this, but I just go, I just go right to the law thing because it's just real and they should know it, right? And, I, and it is often a surprise to, 
to young people. They don't, they don't actually know this part because they think of when they've learned about pornography or and child pornography, it's, it's this illegal thing, right? And it's this, obviously it's a thing that always includes exploitation. So that's that. The porn thing, I mean, this, you know, the unfortunate reality is we just need to be talking to our kids about porn now, right? I mean, and we need to do it younger than we really want. So for me, the answer is, and it's not that it's not that I've even done this, but like the point at which your kid is unattended and has access to YouTube is the point at which you should have some, they should know that word. They should know something about what pornography is, and they should know that you are totally comfortable talking about it with them. And that if they ever see anything online that they feel that they, and it's not just if they see anything, like you don't make it about sex. So if you see something online that makes you feel uncomfortable or confused or scared, you can always talk to me about it. I could look at it on my own and we can talk about it. Like, it's just, you know, this stuff is out there. And a lot of this stuff is made to make us feel confused and scared. And in the same way that like when we, you know, watch TV together, we talk about, you know, the ads. This is weird. I'm dating myself because I love <laughs> you have ads have in your TV. Well, on, on, on Hulu, you saw I, I have the less expensive Hulu. So then there's ads <laughs> that, you know, we, we do like media literacy. We talk about like how people are trying to sell stuff to us. You know, I want to talk to you about that stuff. So, so there is, so as I said, so in the book for 10 year olds is a chapter on pornography. Honestly, as an educator, it should have been in the book for seven to nine-year-olds. And I just, I couldn't figure out quite how to do it in a way that parents were going to be comfortable with, that it wasn't going to feel like too much for a lot of people. But because, because of the way, particularly since the pandemic and kids are on screens a lot more, and, and, and we're all more comfortable with our kids being unattended on screens because a lot of them were doing virtual school. So we're now used to like them being in a room. Like it used to be a lot of parents were like, they, you know, uh, don't let them be alone on a screen with access to yeah, the common spaces and yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we just, we just need to talk about it. And, and then it is, I mean, like, obviously like the street proofing of the eighties is now a lot of it is online, right? So kids do need to know. So, so the newer language is tricky adults. I don't know if you've heard this, but some people say like, you need to talk to your kids, but there are some adults who are tricky that, and they, and they may try to trick you into doing things. And so the language I would use with a young kid is like they they might try to get you to tell them stories or send a picture of yourself to them, right? So with a young kid, I'm not going to say I'm not going to I'm not going to talk about sexual abuse. I'm not going to get specific about those kinds of harms. And other people might. I don't want to say that I'm right about this. I'm just sharing sort of that's that's what I've come to. And so I want you to learn how to identify those people because the tricky because of course they're tricky. So they try to pretend to be other people. So <clears throat> unfortunately. We need to let our kids know that those people that, that there's people out there. I don't use what I just did there. I pause, right? Like I try not to do it. Those people or they're out there because the thing that I learned from working with social workers who work with children who are experiencing abuse is weirdly they're like, don't make this scary. Right. So when we did our first draft of the sexual abuse chapter, the illustrations were different. Like they were literally, they looked a bit more like, kind of claustrophobic because we wanted to mark this as different. We had been talking about all kinds of good touch. And now we're talking about this. And they were all like, if you make it scary, no one's going to want to talk about it. Parents aren't going to want to talk about it. Kids aren't going to want to talk about it. The most important thing, like, of course, people who are there with these kids know that what the stakes are. The most important thing is, they, is that they can talk about it. So whatever we need to do to make it, you know, that we don't need to do this, like, it's going to be scary and terrible. Don't do that. You can, because of course, the other thing is, is that, there are kids who do experience like, so for example, like this online stuff for a lot of, for some kids at the beginning of it, it's very pleasurable because they're getting attention. They, they think they're making friends. Their experience is they're making a friend, 
right? So then if you go in and say like these people, there's, there's people out there that are going to try to, you know, snatch you or do these terrible things, it doesn't actually match their experience. So, so I really, I, I, I try to really avoid it. It's so hard. I think the other thing I'll say is like, so I practiced with my partner. I mean, I've practiced with other parents because, because you kind because of, I'm so scared of it. Right? So that's like the reason I make it scary is I'm terrified of it. And again, it's so easy for me to say when I'm working to say the truth, which is, you know, and I know that, which is we cannot keep our kids hundred percent safe. And so if, if they are harmed again, what we want is to know what we want is for them to come to us as soon as you know, as soon as they can, as soon as it feels, you know, and we also know that a lot of us live with these experiences and that we can, you know, live a full, great life full of joy. And those of us who experience that kind of violence and trauma. So I think obviously it's like talking about it. It's putting a lot of this stuff in front of them. It's like media literacy. And then it's just the other thing <clears throat> that Katie said, which is having other adults. So I also really, I, I found, I don't know what your both experiences. I found actually the pandemic has been very hard for this because we used to have people over more so there were more people in my kids life trusted adults who they saw regularly that would come over for dinner every week and so they build that that relationship and because we just stopped that for two years basically it's harder to make those connections particularly with a younger child but i really feel like so i'm like one of my closest friends and colleagues is this person for my kid and my kid would call them and, and, you know, they know how to text them. They don't have their own phone or anything, but they know, you know. And so I do think that's also really important because again, stuff may happen that they just don't want to talk to us about. And so we want them to have someone else, you know, and, and around consent, you want everyone to be open about the fact that like, if you tell me something that makes me worried about your safety, I'm going to, I'm going to need to talk to your mom, but you and I will talk about how we'll do that. Right. Because, because, because if kids, if kids disclose stuff and then they feel betrayed, it makes them less likely to do it again. So we want to make sure that we're trying to support them in a way that keeps them sharing. I think that conversation around tricky people is really important, both for that potential abuse part and in mm -hmm. those relationships as they get older, too. Because, I mean, like that that tricky person could be also the boyfriend who's asking you to send nudes and mm -hmm. you don't feel comfortable with it, but you're like well, is this what we do? <laughs> you know, like, right. is this, you know, like, is this part of our relationship? But if hopefully if, you know, if they have good boundaries and have had, have that confidence in knowing what feels comfortable for them, then maybe they'll be at that spot where they can say, that's, that's not for me. So no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I think that that's where, that's why body autonomy because, is sort of central to sex yeah, like, education. Because those tricky people are not always strangers and they're right. not always... Oh, yeah. out there they yeah they yeah. sometimes the tricky people can also be be the people that are that we thought were the trusted people yeah i mean i'll share with you that <clears throat> that the professionals also wanted me to really make it very clear that they're they're very they're, they're rarely strangers right mm -hmm. so you're much more likely to be harmed by someone you know right and they really i mean like they, they were really pushing me to make it more and more showings in the family because they said that's what happens it's hard to talk about but that is what happens so yeah so so certainly not the stranger day i mean hopefully most of us now know that stranger danger it isn't effective and it isn't realistic right so the, the kids getting snatched thing doesn't i mean it happens but it's very rare yeah compared to the other types compared of things, to the we, things yeah. we need to spend more of our time worrying about yeah yeah so unfortunate. Real Sorry, real quick too, as someone who works in digital media for a living, I think the other thing about 
photos especially is reminding kids that a they're out there forever b you have no control over who sees them once they're out there and c you Mm -hmm. have no control over how people react to them being out there so whether they say things about you or they share them or whatever that there's zero control at that point and that's you know, it feels rude to say that I would be a lot more okay with my kid just showing their body to somebody than to them sharing a digital image because oh. only one person is seeing that. Yeah, there's. I a- agree. What is different about growing up now? Because people used to do that all the time. Like the, I'll show you yours, you show me mine. Or that wasn't the right way to say it. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah, you yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll show yeah. you mine, you show me yours. It, you know, so one person saw it and it wasn't recorded. Yeah. So yeah, no, the stakes are much higher now. All right. So we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up to ensure that you win. Right. To ensure that I win. Okay. So I appreciate that you actually gave me this question in advance because I, I'm not good at talking about things that I'm good at. So I did turn to my kid who hilariously, who won't, I have a terrible singing voice, but this is a beautiful, I'm going to share it because it was so sweet that they said that they actually said karaoke and then they said, because you have such a nice singing voice. <laughs> and, I, and I literally can't, like, I can't, I can't hold a tune. I, I, yeah, yeah, I can't actually <laughs> hold a tune. Have they, have they ever actually experienced you doing karaoke? Is this, they well, just they experience me singing all the time. But, but for the record about how our kids send us mixed messages, I'm not allowed to sing in public. Like when we're walking down the street, it's totally embarrassing. Oh, yeah, 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 don't do it. But it's also their fault, as I point out, right? Because they now, I'm so like, I listen to K-pop all of the time now because of them. And it's very catchy. And then I start singing it. And then I say, well, it's your fault. And then, of course, they pull, because they love loopholes, they say, actually, it's your fault because you're the reason I'm, I'm, I was born. <laughs> yeah, it all goes back to that. It all right? goes back to you. So, <laughs> yes, that. And then, I mean, I was going to, before, when I was trying to think about this, I mean, I was going to say, like, if there was a contest about curiosity, I'm very good at making people curious. So if there was like, a contest where it's like the most, yeah. the greatest curiosity generator, I also love pie. So, but I don't think I, I wouldn't dominate a pie eating contest. I would just enjoy it. Yeah. Pie appreciation. Pie, oh yes. Thank you. Pie appreciation. <laughs> you can be, there you go. So I think we'll go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment. We've registered for an <laughs> online platform called SpeakPipe, where you can leave your cussing and discussing entries for us and we'll play them on the show. So go to speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language to leave us a voice memo, or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com and we will read it out for you. Katie. We've discussed a lot already. What are you cussing and discussing this week? I had to think of something. I'm going to cuss the fact that liking fall has become such a like stereotypical basic white girl thing because I fucking <laughs> love this time of year. It's getting cold. I pulled out my wool socks. I hate hot weather. I don't like shorts. I don't really like the summer foliage. food. There's foliage. There's <laughs> apple cider. I don't really like pumpkin spice everything, but... You know, you do you, but I got my wool socks on. It's cold out and it's crisp and it's beautiful. And there's pumpkins and mums and shit. And I can make hearty stews. I just I fucking love it, Arlene. I love it. It's a stereotype, but it's true. It's great. It's the best yeah. season. I but agree. if you see also me wearing a shirt that says like happy fall y'all or something, <laughs> you'll know that I've just given into it. So anyway. And again, if that's your thing, awesome. Do it. Just <laughs> lean in. Hey, Corey, what do you have to cuss and discuss? Uh, I need more information. So, because uh, I just, so 
the cousin discuss. So it's either is... yeah, either something that you that has annoyed you this week, or just a random topic that you want to talk about. It's very it's open. just sort of a hot take on whatever you got. <laughs> oh God, oh God! You know what? Let's talk about the word gentleman. I was <clears throat> I went out for dinner last night. I know Kate's <laughs> making a weird face. I I don't know the last time either of you were called gentleman, but. But it's, I, I went to a restaurant with a friend who's like a white gay guy. And so we were both read as white gay guys. And they kept, sorry, I just, excuse me. They kept calling us gentlemen. And honestly, because I'm not gay and I liked that, like the, the, the fact that they were calling me gentlemen made me feel like they, they were misreading me, but they were misreading me into a different category altogether. So I didn't mind, but my friend did. He was like, are we going to say something about it? And we didn't say anything about it. But uh, so I guess, yeah, I'll, if, I, if I'm cussing something, it's about like gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, just use people. Also, mm-hmm. I got to live, I was lucky enough to live in Texas for five years. So I learned y'all, which is in fact a very, very useful word. Y'all was my cussing and discussing one week because as a Canadian, I want to use it. And yet when I try I feel like I might, maybe I just need more practice, but it's definitely like... a practice thing, Arlene. I mean, <laughs> other people in Iowa just don't not... use it, but I do because I, yeah, yeah, I love how inclusive it is. Yeah. Okay. I just need to work on it, I guess. Yeah. yeah I work on it. Pra- I, but having yeah, lived there, I, I agree. As also having grown up here, it feels like you're almost making fun of people or taking you're, that you're faking co-opting. an accent. <laughs> yes. But yeah. But once I lived there for five years now, I feel like, oh, I can just say it, but I know people probably feel that way. Also. Yeah. Just stop thinking, stop caring what other people think. Use That's it. right. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. All right, y'all. So mine is slightly, maybe a bit deeper. I don't know. But I was thinking the other day about how in parenting that your effort doesn't equal results and how annoying that is. That <laughs> that it's not like you can just be like, I'm going to do my best job and then my kid is going to be whatever. I mean, like a rock star, you know, like whatever you think your result is that you you can't just do all the work and that you're going to get what you think you're going to get. I mean, hopefully you'll end up, I mean, we're, we've all got good kids, whatever, but yeah, that, that it's not a straight line to success. I'm sure that that's just life, but in parenting, sometimes it feels extra frustrating. It's true. I very much, I very much agree with that. And it's also so hard because work is often like incremental and you have to do it over and over and over again. Like, because I have a younger kid, it's like, just like, whatever it is, if it's like, wanting them to brush their teeth or wanting them to say please and thank you. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, you have to tell them that like a thousand times. It's with, with all this stuff we talked about, right? Yeah. That it's not a one conversation and it's no. done. So it's, yeah, it's that. But then I suppose when you you hopefully recognize the time when they, they said please and thank you without prompting or, yeah. you know, one of our big things in our house is it's, it's only helpful if the person wants your help. So mm-hmm. if I hear one of my kids asking, do you need my help with that? Rather than jumping in and taking something out of their hands or fixing it for them, because as little people, I could see how frustrating that was to them when you would just take over. So mm-hmm. I, I think we're finally getting to the point in our family where most of the time someone will say, do you want my help? That's great. Before... So, yeah, I just, you have to look for the little signs, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Arlene, that feels like one that should be on a t-shirt because I am, <laughs> I am here for that. Yeah. It's only helpful. So it's only helpful if they want help. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, yeah, just, t- just good. taking over. <laughs> yeah. 
makes them frustrated. And then, and then the person doing the helping is like, what? I was just trying to help. It's like unsolicited <laughs> advice, right? Yeah. I was just being helpful in right. telling you <laughs> what I think you're doing wrong. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why are you so offended? All right. I think that's us for today. I'm sure that we could talk forever, but thank you so much, Corey, for joining us. It was a privilege to be able to talk to you and learn from you. If people want to learn more about your work and your books, where should they find you? They can, well, so the books are kind of everywhere, but uh, they can just find me at my website, which is coreysilverberg.com, C-O-R-Y-S-I-L-V-E-R-B-E-R-G. Yeah. Yeah. And they're available in libraries and bookstores across North America. And thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you very much. We didn't end up talking about that much farm stuff, but I know, but a little but, bit. Yeah, yeah. I learned I learned some things. <laughs> there you go. Wait, yeah. can you just remind me? Wait, 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 hold on. There's lot live coverage. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go tell people about live coverage right now. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> you can talk about artificial insemination too. Yes. Well, and you can have you can have me back and then we can I can interview both of you. Thank you for joining us today on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash Barnyard Language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making the show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you'd like to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We're always in search of future guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.